0: Hello, everyone. It's me, your host, Hannah, the Suburban Witch, in case you weren't aware. And I just wanted to jump in real quick before we jump into this, uh, what might be called a heavy episode, uh, to let you all know that I am doing a lot of classes at the moment. I have really felt a call to just sort of shift and pivot a little bit. I'm sorry, you can hear my cat meowing in the background. Um, I felt this call to shift and pivot. Away from doing my astrology reports, which was surprising. I love doing them, but I think I was just doing quite a few and it was becoming a little bit monotonous. And so I've actually taken them off the website for the time being, they will probably come back, but right now just taking a break. And instead I am focusing on doing my classes. You may have seen, I did a tarot class and then just yesterday I did a candle magic class, which was wonderful. And I have another tarot class coming out shortly too, if you missed the first one. So keep an eye out. I'll put a link below to my actual shop where you can purchase the classes. And I would love to see you at one of them. They're super fun. I make them interactive. You learn loads and then also get the replay as well. So if you want to learn directly from me and have access to my wisdom and my, uh, what would I call it? Initiatory vibes, because that seems to be what happens. Hey, River, can you not chew on my pens whilst I'm recording my podcast? Thank you. River is my beautiful kitty cat. I love you. The people that my knowledge and energy is for will find it quite transformative and initiatory. I am a manifester in human design. That's what I'm here to do. And the people that I'm not for or who are not ready for that yet probably won't feel that tug or that pull to come and learn from me. So listen to that. Listen to what is happening in your body. If you do feel that tug, I hope to see you there or at least one of the ones in the future. And just a side note, when you jump onto my website, all of the prices are in Australian dollars. So if you're in the US, it will actually work out cheaper for you. And same with the UK and Europe. It's going to be cheaper for you when you convert it to your own currency but at the moment, all of my classes are $80 Australian and they go for around about two, two and a half hours. And we really get in there and they're fun. I keep them fun. I promise they're fun. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking. You know what's there, you know how to find it. And I hope to see you there. Otherwise, let's jump into this episode. Welcome to Witch Talks, the series for spiritual seekers, witches and enlightened souls. I'm Hannah the Suburban Witch, professional tarot reader, astrologer and witch. And I hope you're ready to get up close and personal with your favourite witches. All right, guys, this one's a heavy one. I'm going to start off with a quote from myself. I'm going to quote myself because I can do that. And this is my own podcast. I posted this on Twitter last year. And a lot of people really resonated with this. And it goes with the theme of this episode. Here we go. My witchcraft is a love letter to the little girl who felt powerless in the face of demons and the mighty force of the church. I even get goosebumps saying that again now. My witchcraft is a love letter to the little girl who felt powerless in the face of demons and the mighty force of the church, because that's, that's exactly what this is. Witchcraft for me is a reclaiming. I reclaim the power of the word. I reclaim my own autonomous power. And especially when the church does just make you feel powerless and fearful with its big force and its fear tactics and all else that goes along with it. So If you have any religious trauma, I will let you know this episode is going to go there. We're going there. So please take care of yourself. If it's a bit much, you can stop. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Take care of yourself. You come first. If you are listening and nodding along and, you know, shouting amen from the pews, let me know. I want to know. I want to know how this lands for you. It's, It's something I'm really passionate about talking about. And I think it's powerful. So here we go. Now, I normally call these a mini-sode, but I've got a feeling this ain't going to be one because I've got a lot to say. Today's topic is religious trauma, specifically Christian, evangelical, Pentecostal-style trauma, okay? Uh, because this is exactly what I went through myself. Now this topic was, I guess, triggered by the fact that I went into a doctor's clinic this week and noticed that they had Hillsong music playing in the waiting room. If you don't know what Hillsong is, then you're probably not going to understand most of the stuff in this episode. But Hillsong is basically a mega church here in Australia and now the world and they are very well known for their music. So outside of the fact that their founding father is a convicted pedophile, outside of the fact that their head pastor has just been charged with knowing about the pedophilia and covering it up and allowing his father to continue preaching, outside of that, because unfortunately we have bad people in every organization in the world. Although I do feel it's worse when they're preaching on being good and holy, yet doing that in their free time. But we're not here to talk about that. I'm actually here to talk about the music because that is what triggered a lot of stuff coming up for me this week, right? I don't think it's quite fair that I should have to sit through that music in a doctor's office. So, let's backtrack, and I'm going to give you a little bit of my personal story, okay? It's not the full story from Christianity to witchcraft, but it is the Christian side of my story and my thoughts around that. If you yourself have religious trauma, I do advise that you listen to this with compassion for your, future, uh, your past self, and compassion for what you've been through, and if it does get difficult, take a break or stop and go and chat to someone, preferably a licensed professional. So my story, I went to an Assemblies of God, or AOG church, which is now known as Australian Christian churches. I'm not gonna give the name of the church that I attended, and it wouldn't matter anyway, because they've had numerous name changes since then. Now the ACC is a branch of the World Assemblies of God Fellowship, which is the largest Pentecostal denomination in the world. And the church that I was specifically raised in is still a part of the ACC. Hillsong was also a part of the ACC up until 2018, where they withdrew from the ACC and became their own denomination. Senior pastor at the time, Brian Houston, said of the split that as Hillsong Church has continued to grow, we no longer see ourselves as an Australian church with a global footprint, but rather a global church with an Australian base. Our global office now resides in the USA. And yes, that is a very David Attenborough <laughs> sounding voice, but it's just my old man voice that I'm putting on for you all to show that I'm quoting him. Now, what he failed to mention is that removing themselves from the ACC gave them the ability to credential pastors in their own right without any overarching governing body. This screams red flags, if you ask me. It also means that they can preach whatever the hell they want without any doctrinal oversight. Now, our church, the one I was brought up in, described Hillsong as a sister church. My mum would even take me and my neighbour and her mum and their cousin and their mum and a few other women and daughters from the church every year. They would fly us up to Sydney to attend the Hillsong Women's Colour Conference. (sighs) We loved that conference, like, at the time, we loved it. It was so much fun, and in hindsight, I notice many problematic parts of what was preached and taught, such as an emphasis on not letting yourself go when you get married, being a good wife, woman, daughter, doing as you're told. We could go on about the good girl dynamic that the church preaches, but I'm going to wind it back to the music for now. We sang their songs, so the Hillsong songs, at the beginning and end of each service and at youth group each week. My mum also blasted their songs in the car and at home every day of the week. I was bombarded with Hillsong praise and worship in my life. I think you will actually find most churches around the world will use Hillsong songs in their services, which all originate from the head church in New South Wales here in Australia. So their songs are not created equally they're not the same as the way other churches or Christian music is created so let me give you some details here wikipedia says Hillsong Music is a Christian music production by Hillsong Church in Sydney Australia they also have offshoot churches Hillsong London and Hillsong Kiev Hillsong albums are released and distributed by Hillsong Music the main groups are Hillsong Worship Hillsong United Hillsong Young and Free and Hillsong Kids Now, Rolling Stone reported that according to the church's self-released 2017 annual report, which was independently audited, its total revenue for 2017 was a little over one hundred and nine million dollars. And about 14 million dollars of that came directly from their music. So this is a business and it is big business let me remind you churches don't pay taxes. When I say their songs are not created equally that is because every song has two copyrights a mechanical royalty for the music and the lyrics and one for the actual performance which is usually what you hear being played. So the songwriter does receive a royalty that's law right we have to do that by the law but the church gets paid for the actual playing of the song so it doesn't matter who sings it. It doesn't matter who's playing the instruments, they don't get royalties, they don't see a cent. They may or may not receive a salary from Hillsong, which of course they'd lose if they ever left the church. But let's be honest, one of the biggest criticisms of the church is the unpaid volunteers being used as slave labour so that they can make their millions. Another way that Hillsong is different to other Christian music is because they, they actually sound pretty good, right? They're similar enough to modern rock or pop songs that they attract a wide audience. It's cool, right? I mean, Natasha Bedingfield served on the worship team and wrote their songs at one point. Now, this is actually something called liturgical enculturation. Big words, I know. I'm going to break it down. This is the adaptation of Christian liturgy to a non-Christian cultural background. And it draws people in, right? Because it sounds familiar, Now, the songs are really good, but they are engineered to induce a physical response in your body. We know that music does this, but they are purposefully crafting these songs to induce emotions. Their music tells you what they want you to think. The music tells you what the mood should be. They are forcing you to feel things during their services. If you've ever been to a Hillsong or any evangelical church, the piano starts softly playing an intro to a worship song just before the call to the altar. It's a very somber mood, everyone closes their eyes, like you just know, you know what you're supposed to do. It triggers you to do things and feel things. I've also heard people saying that they were told to change the temperature in the room when certain songs came on, to induce goosebumps on the skin as the songs were going it begs to question a lot of the spiritual things that happen is that induced through the music and the repetition or was it an actual spiritual experience this is where it gets a little bit funky Now, we were told to bring as many friends to church as possible, and the music was a big draw for this. Like, oh, no, 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 it's not like other churches. This one's cool. The singers and the musicians on stage were always beautiful, dressed wonderfully, and everyone wanted to be them. Darlene Check was the lead singer at Hillsong when we were attending things like their annual colour conference, the women's conference. And when I tell you every woman there was dressed like her, it is not an overstatement. Even the women in our church, right? Because we would watch her on TV or we would watch clips of her in church. And the women, they copied her hair, her clothes, even her movements on stage, the way she worshipped. We all wanted to be her. So I just want to come back to say I have nothing against Christianity. But churches... Especially mega megachurches are a different ball game. I remember one time there was a person who was homeless and they wandered into my church asking for some food. And I remember the, the ushers, so they are the people that usher you to your seat. They said, yep, 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 sure, shh, you know, like shushed them and moved them to the back so no one could see them. Yeah, sure, we'll feed you. Uh, you just need to sit through the service. So basically, sit here, maybe get converted by our awesome music and charismatic pastors, and then we'll help you. If Jesus was here, he would have just fed him. When we read the New Testament, did Jesus ever try to get people into church? No. Actually, in John 2.19, Jesus actually threw money changers out of the temple for trying to extract a prophet. Did you hear that hill song? And then he threatened to destroy the temple. Jesus hung around with beggars, thieves probably homeless people too, and prostitutes. Did he proselytize to them? Nope. He just hung with them and treated them as normal humans. He wasn't shaming them or forcing them to follow him. He seemed to simply lived his life, and if people followed him, so be it. I also want to speak on, and this might be jumping around a little bit, <laughs> That's because I'm literally taking notes from my live, which was prompted by certain comments that people would leave as I was talking, like, oh, what about this? And I was like, oh, my gosh, yes. So I've taken out the oh, my gosh, yeses, except for just then. Uh, But I do also want to talk about something else called Mercy House that was run by Hillsong and partially funded by Gloria Jeans. Now, this is relevant to my own story, and it's not something that I talk about a lot, and it's something I've only recently been a bit more public about. And that is that I I did have an eating disorder as a teenager. And it was pretty bad for a long time, from about the ages of twelve to twenty one. And at the worst part, my mum was at her wits end, sorry mum. And she took she took me to Sydney to this place called Mercy House, and we went on a walkthrough. Now, Mercy House is like a rehab center for troubled teens, and it started as a place where you would send pregnant girls, and then it uh, expanded into those who had eating disorders, self-harm, mental health concerns, okay? And we went through a walkthrough, right? And this place is in the middle of nowhere. Like, it is in the countryside. And the only time you were allowed to leave, like you get locked in there, the only time you're allowed to leave would be to go to Hillsong on a Sunday. That was it, okay? Mum, thank fuck, had a bad feeling about it. She is clairsentient, although we didn't have that word for it until recently. But there are so many horrifying accounts from women that went through that centre, and I'm so thankful my mum listened to her gut instinct there. She didn't want to because it was related to Hillsong, so it must be good, right? But they basically told all the girls they had demons in them, and tried to exorcise them, and pray it away. They were taking asthma puffers off people, and psychotropic drugs off them, and making them stop cold turkey, because you're here for Jesus to heal you. Like, that is just so horrifying, and I'm so glad that did not become my own story. But that just goes to show a little bit more on the insidious sides of Hillsong, right? And I'll put a link in the description for an article specifically about Mercy House if you wanted to read more into that. Now, as I said earlier, this was partially funded by Gloria Jean's Coffee here in Australia, so just a coffee house, and whilst it was free for girls to go to, if they were on Centrelink, which is government benefits, they were told to sign those across to Hillsong. Families were also asked to provide a donation, and a lot of the people working there were Bible students, right? Hillsong profits off music, merchandise, free (coughs) slave labor, and prosperity gospel. What's that? It's telling people that if they're good enough, God will provide for them. If they tithe 10% of their wages, God will provide it back tenfold. Be a good girl, do as you're told, and you will be rewarded. That was the message, and that was the lie. I think sometimes we should ask ourselves, what would a good girl do in this situation, and what would a bad girl do? Then choose the bad girl option, because this can help us heal from the good girl aspect that the church instills in us. The free labour thing isn't just limited to Hillsong either. My own church did it too. They were constantly asking for volunteers to run the cafe, the shop, all of the events. Now, I'm all for volunteer work generally, but not when the church or business in question pays no taxes and makes you basically pay to do the work. You also can't move up in the ranks unless you put in your time. It is a recipe for overwhelm, burnout and disaster. When we did work experience at school, and I went to a Christian school as well, everyone else went to like McDonald's or some cool business that they found or a retail clothing store, right? Where did I go? I went to church. So for two weeks, I followed the youth pastors around. I got them coffee, I bought their lunch. We went to a different school each day to try and convert students at lunchtime using fun songs, usually Hillsong, and playing games. Like, what the fuck? Did the parents of the students know about this? Who agreed to this? They weren't Christian schools. And of course, I paid for my train ticket to and from the city to get to work at the church each day for two weeks, bought coffees and all sorts of things and didn't get a cent myself because it's the church. I'm sure you can tell I have a lot to say on this topic and religious trauma spans a variety of different areas. And I want to sidebar into the topic of purity culture. Now, purity culture is very controlling and it plays an important part as it tells people to not listen to their bodies. Naturally, if we are attracted to someone physically and sexually and getting close to them and getting to know them, we are evolutionarily designed to want to procreate. That is what our bodies are designed to do. Plus, there is pleasure involved. Small side note, if you are asexual, obviously you might not have these feelings, but generally, as a whole, this is what our bodies will do. Now, what is actually written about sex before marriage can be found in 1 Corinthians, which was written by Paul. So 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20 says, flee, Uh, remember, this is my funny voices when I do quotes, so just deal with it. (laughs) Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now that doesn't actually say anything about marriage. But in Hebrews 13, it talks about honoring the marriage bed by keeping it pure. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. I mean, I'd say that is open to interpretation. The other thing about the Bible is who interpreted it, because a lot of churches, especially the one I was raised in, use the King James version, the KJV, which was translated for King James with political reasons in mind. So everything will be tainted with the political leanings of that particular time frame for when that version was translated. So you have to look at the political implications of the time period for when it was translated and What was it doing for the church or royalty at that time? Also, we need to think about the time that it was written. What was the cultural understanding of these words? Let the marriage bed be undefiled? That could have a totally different meaning. Maybe that means don't sleep with someone else in your wife's bed. Maybe you can sleep with them in another bed, but not your bed. But that doesn't actually say not to have sex before marriage. So it's not biblically accurate to say that it's a sin to have sex before marriage, yet that's what the church preaches. And they do it in such a way that most Christians would not know that it's not in the Bible because they are told it is a sin to have sex before marriage. Sex is powerful. But what's more powerful is telling people it's wrong to have this natural physical impulse. Because when you accidentally go a little bit further than you think you should, what emotion does that produce in your body? Guilt? Shame. Guilt is there to tell us when we've done something morally wrong. It comes up to tell us to make amends, to keep our connections in our community links safe and repair relationships. But it gets very skewed in this day and age when we feel guilty for doing something that someone else may perceive as wrong, even though it doesn't actually hurt anyone or affect anyone else whatsoever. A good example of this is mum guilt. Why do we even have that in our vocabulary? Mum guilt? Like, that can fuck right off. I feel guilty for feeding my baby overnight because someone said they should be sleeping through. This is not an appropriate use of our guilt emotion. How ridiculous is that? Feel guilty if you hurt someone on purpose. Don't feel guilty for doing something that you need to do to survive, or for doing what you want to do. To bring it back to me, I had sex before marriage. Oh, shock, horror, surprise! And it was before we were kicked out of our church. I remember the feeling at the time, full of shame, full of guilt. I felt dirty. Now, I personally have a very all or nothing personality. My husband husband calls it an addictive personality showed up in my teens as an eating disorder where it was either eating nothing for days on end, finally feeling guilty for not eating, so I would take a bite of something and think fuck it, I might as well eat everything in sight now, which would cause a binge and often later a purge and the big old guilt cycle began again. It also showed up in drug use, in cigarettes, gosh I was a smoker from the age of 12, and then the day that I quit it was cold turkey at 23. Yet I know that I cannot have a c- sneaky cigarette ever again, or I would go straight back to it. I know myself now. I know this. Like, that's why I don't do it. Although I have said if I if I ever got, you know, told I have a few months or whatever left to live, I would be like straight back into it. Like, doesn't matter anymore. Because I did really enjoy it. But that's not a promotion of cigarettes in any way, shape or form. They are bad for you. Don't do it. So this all or nothing behavior behavior also showed up with sex because it was drilled into me. You can't have sex before marriage. You can't have sex before marriage. Oops, you've had sex before marriage. Not by choice, but it happened. And suddenly it was like, well, fuck, what's the point in continuing to wait? I am already dirty in the eyes of God, dirty in the eyes of my future husband. I'm wrong and sinful and obviously going to hell, so why hold back now? That is the mentality the church can put into you. And when you mix that with any form of mental health, which many people have, well, you're fucked. You can get stuck in a risk-taking cycle feeling guilty and shameful, which can only exacerbate any mental health issues that you have. Purity culture is just another form of control that the church have over you. Because if you feel guilty and if you feel shame, what are you going to do? You're going to run right back to God and ask for forgiveness. And when they play that chord on the piano and the pastor stands up and everyone gets all somber and serious. And they say, if there is anyone here today and they want to say in their heart today, Jesus set me free. And you have everyone going hallelujah in the uh, audience. Then I invite you to come to the altar. Raise your hand and we will pray with you today. Give up your sins to him and he will wash you clean again. Who here needs to say sorry for the sins you've committed? Uh, I'm pretty sure Jesus was supposed to have died for those. Why do I have to keep apologising, right? The amount of times I responded to that altar call. Hundreds. Hundreds. I even got baptised twice. Once at age five. Once at age eight. Because I felt it was necessary. At eight years old. Are you relating to this? It's very personal, I know. But I also know I'm not alone. Only do it for kids or to please your husband. Don't take pleasure from it, because that's slutty. This is what gives us trauma. These lessons that are drilled into us, this is the traumatic stuff. It's the rules that we live by that produce these intense feelings. We shouldn't feel morally wrong for doing or thinking things that are part of our human nature. To place shame on that is wrong. It's the same thing as placing shame on food, which is what I did for many, many years of my life, which divulges into things like an eating disorder, putting shame on sexual thoughts, actions, impulses, desires and fantasies, which are all a part of being human, unless you're asexual, causes that to shift off from its natural pathway. Similar to adding shame to food causes you to start eating differently, viewing food and your body differently, and separating you from your natural appetite. Same with our sexual desires. That's going to divulge into things like sexual impotence that is purely psychological from the church, repressed sexuality, repressed homosexuality, and in worst cases it can maybe even be why we see such high rates of adultery and pedophilia in the church. I'm not saying it's the reason, but it damn well could be. I myself am bi, and I only came out to my mom and my brother this year. For years, I thought there was no point since I'm now in a heteronormative relationship. And then it got to the point where I realized it's a part of who I am. I'm only hiding it because I'm in fear that people are going to think of me differently, mainly my family or my friends from the church. And it was funny because I was so much more open about my bisexuality with people who I knew had never been in a church or people that I'd only just met. But anyone from my past, that was a really tough conversation for me to have. We need balance here. Because what does it do to us if we see the things that are good and normal in life as wrong? Or the things that are wrong and harmful as good? Like forcing your beliefs on others as a thing to be celebrated because you see it as right and good and righteous? That is the problem with these churches. They think they are doing the right thing when they are inviting you to church or playing their music in the doctor's clinic. That is proselytizing. That is a part of it. It's evangelical. When you find them on the street holding up their signs, preaching the word of God, spreading the gospel, from the church's perspective, this means more money in the church, more money in our pockets. From the people's perspective, though, this means more people in the church, more people in heaven, and the more souls I save, the more chance I have of getting into heaven myself. It's purely selfish after all. Gosh, the amount of things I used to do, purely to be seen doing them by people in the church. Similar to when someone feeds a homeless person in the street and videos it to put it on social media. Oh, I'll volunteer. Yes, I'll do the tithes collections and I'll stay back to clean up. I'm happy to work in the service of God. No, you're not. You're happy to work in service of yourself to be seen as good and selfless so that everyone can see how good and holy you are. And you up your chances of getting into heaven. Now, back to the gay thing. Most people in the church can't even admit to themselves when they're not straight because it is preached and repeated and repeated over and over again that it's wrong and sinful. The word homosexual was never in the original Bible. I want you guys to really understand this. And when people bring it up in real life, I need you to remember this to push it back on them. Okay? because the church has done so much damage to the lgbtqia group the word homosexual was never in the original bible in the original greek and hebrew texts the word that is now translated to homosexual was actually accurately translated to pedophile boy abuser or boy molester so according to the bible homosexuality is not a sin child molesting is so anyone who tries to tell you that it's sinful or against God has only read recent translations. Pink Manta Ray, who is an excellent resource to follow on trans activism, has a clear and concise article on his website. And he gives this timeline. In 1534, Martin Luther's original German translation includes Nebenschande, which means boy molester. In the 1800s, a German Bible reads, Man shall not lie with young boys as he does with a woman, for it is an abomination. That's Leviticus 18.22. And reads, Boy molesters will not inherit the kingdom of God, in 1 Corinthians. By 1892, the Germans create the word homosexual. By 1983, the American company Biblica pays for an updated German Bible that uses the word homosexual instead of boy molesters. This was later put into the English Bibles, which read, Man shall not lie with man, for it is an abomination. This leads into witchcraft as well, because we haven't even talked about witchcraft yet. And you know this is the same stuff as what I've just said, right? Being gay is preached as a sin. Witchcraft is preached as a sin. Same devil, different hats. Witchcraft was yet another mistranslation. Elizabeth Sloan wrote an article on Haretz.com which attests to this. Exodus 22.18 says, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. The original Hebrew word used in Exodus, which has been translated as witch. And remember, this is Hebrew. So I'm going to I'm going to stuff this up. I'm so sorry. But it is Mekashepa. But what that word actually meant when Exodus was written thousands of years ago, we don't know. The root of the word is translated as mutterings by one biblical scholar and theologian in a book called Biblical Demonology. He essentially interpreted it as witch by one who practices magic using occult formulas, incantations, and mystic mutterings. But then a man named Kenneth Kitchen, a Bible scholar at the University of Liverpool, translated that root word as to cut and thinks it might refer to cutting herbs. If we look to the Hebrew Septuagint, makapshepa was translated into pharmakeia, which is Greek. And pharmakeia can be more akin to herbalist. However, Reginald Scott, which is a British member of parliament in the 16th century and one time student at Oxford, translated pharmakeia to actually mean poisoner in his book, The Discovery of Witchcraft. So Exodus might be referring to poisoners instead of witches. I'll link you to her article as it goes into greater depth than I have time to here and has links to all of her sources as well. And I've mentioned this on previous podcast episodes, I believe the one where I interviewed my husband, because pharmacea is actually where we get the word pharmacy, right? And that's where drugs, poisons, all of that link in. So maybe we should go and tell Christian Karen that it's actually her Panadol that's causing her to sin. (laughs) It's not. You can totally take Panadol. It's fine, guys. Now, as I mentioned... I had mental health concerns um, and I struggled for about 12 to 21. And then again, after the birth of my daughter at 26. But my teen years were pretty tough, which was due to many different reasons. One being the church. Another being that I was quite sensitive and didn't quite know how to process that. And there was a lot of shame in lots of things. The constant story that I was told, Hannah talks too much. Oh my God, she never shuts up. And my mum used to say, I couldn't wait for you to start talking. And then you started and never stopped. And my dad would say, well, you always know when Hannah's home, blah, 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 blah. And by the age of 24, I was so damn afraid to speak, worried people wouldn't like me because I talked too much. I I started a job at 24 and I didn't talk for the whole first month. Everyone was like, oh, she's so quiet and introverted because I just didn't feel safe being me. My personality felt too big for others. So I made myself small. Now you can see how just a couple of comments was enough to cause this massive shift in my personality and the way I express myself in the world, even into adulthood. So I'm sure you can imagine how hearing any sort of thing that we've been talking about being taught in the church week after week after week on a repetitive basis, you can see just how much of an effect this would have on people and how they show up in the world. It can literally change them. It changes what they think they're allowed to like. So this is a core part of deconstructing from religious trauma. We need to figure out who we really are under all that conditioning. Now, the last thing I want to briefly touch on before finishing up my epic religious trauma monologue today is testimonies. Testimonies. Why are they a thing? Or let me tell you my sob story about how terrible my life was before Christ. With my all or nothing mentality, I used to sit there listening and fantasize about going so far off the rails that I would have the best testimony transformation story to tell on stage at church. That is not healthy. That is fucked up. That could also be a very negative association with my Scorpio moon in my natal chart. But that whole topic I guess is one for another day. I guess it just gives you a little glimpse into some of the things that can affect people who go through the church, why it causes so much damage and why that fucking Hillsong song blasting through a doctor's office was so damn triggering. Please, if this has spoken to you in any way, let me know. If you have a particular takeaway from this episode, I would love for you to get in touch with me. You can email me suburbanwitchery at gmail.com. Shoot me a DM on any of my social media accounts. I always respond to my DMs. Feel free to hit me up, chat about it. I want to get to know you. And if we've got this in common, then definitely let's talk. I want to hear your stories as well. If anything I've talked about today has brought up something for you, I recommend you seek professional help. Don't go to the free counselors at church because they don't have confidentiality clauses and it is very unethical. They're also not trained. (laughs) Definitely go and see an actual psychologist or therapist to talk about this sort of stuff with. Something I have done many a time with many a therapist and I still haven't gotten into all of it or unearthed it all. If it did bring up some things for you in a good way, As in, "Mm, I didn't realize that might have been affecting me too, but it's not like too traumatic for you. Maybe go back, listen again, and take some notes. Write it down. Expand on that. Do some tarot cards around that particular part and see what other things might be underlying or how it's affecting you in other areas. There are a lot of ways you can start to incorporate some of the teachings from this episode into your own healing journey from religious trauma. I hope this has helped. I hope this speaks to some of you. I know it is not for all of my audience and that's fine. That's okay. But I hope it's helped you. I hope you have a lovely day wherever you are in the world today. And if you can, please leave me a review. Bye for now.